Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, listeners. You might be surprised to hear from us on a weekend. Well, we recorded this episode last week, but then decided to talk about the monumental events coming out of Minneapolis instead. But we still think that this episode is one you should hear. So we'll bring it to you now. It's cold from the Miami-Dade Metro West Detention Center. Treat like they really don't give a damn. We in the cell full of people that test positive. Could have happened to me because I'm 51 going on 52. And anyone else can die anytime if we take a turn for the worst. Those were prisoners in Florida sharing their fears over coronavirus with the Hear Us Project. Now, the county that runs the prison where they're housed says that it is giving soap and masks to inmates, ramping up testing, and that inmates are, quote, instructed to sleep in staggered formation head to toe. Hi, everyone. I'm CNN correspondent Kristen Holmes in for David Chalian, and this is The Daily D.C. Across the country, prisons and jails have emerged as coronavirus hotspots. They have cramped cells and overcrowded facilities, and these are all the things that obviously accelerate the spread of the virus. And prison officials say they're doing the best they can, but prisoners now are turning it to the legal system to protest those conditions. They're filing lawsuits across the country, seeking improved conditions, or in some case, they're seeking early release. This has set off a series of legal battles that have made it as far as the Supreme court. So joining me now to break this all down and help us figure it out is Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue. Ariane, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be here. So petitions concerning inmates who say they are suffering, quote, cruel and unusual punishment because prisons aren't doing enough to protect them against COVID are now reaching the Supreme Court. Can you give us some background as to what exactly is going on here? Right. Well, you know, as soon as this pandemic hit, lower courts were on it. Those judges knew that COVID would wreak havoc in the jails. They looked at the recommended guidelines, masks, social distancing, hand washing. And those judges knew that the prisoners were tinderboxes for this contagious disease. And the prisoners came to court and they said, look, we've got a lack of space, overcrowding, few sanitary supplies. And these judges, Kristen, they see life and death situations all the time. But in some of those early opinions, you could see their nervousness. They knew that this contagious disease was really going to be challenging and it was going to move super fast. And of course, these cases don't start off at the Supreme Court. They start at the district court, then they go to the appeals court. But just now they're beginning to reach the justices. And one petition, one of the first I thought was really interesting because it almost at the top called out the justices because the lawyer began the petition saying, you know, most people in the U.S., including the justices, are staying at home. As if saying, look, you justices can social distance, you can have your arguments by telephone, but prisoners can't. It's really, really hard for them to social distance. 
And one thing we should say at the top is we're talking about lots of different kinds of legal challenges, right? Some are in federal courts, some in state courts, some are for these low-risk prisoners and others are for people who are in there for attempted murder. But one thing that's really clear here is that it's not only the prisoners, but the staff. They're all feeling the same kind of fear and almost panic at this point. Right, because everything is such close quarters, as you said. And I think that is a really good point to make when you're making these arguments and you're talking to justices who are in the safety of their own homes and they don't have to deal with this. And even the judges across the country who do interact with prisoners on a regular basis, at this point, they're not. So they're not even going to these prisons. They're safe at home. It is interesting because one judge in Louisiana he came right to that point. Like this judge doesn't know what prisons are like. And he had this conference call and he wanted to hear from one of the inmates, right? And this inmate had diabetes and he gave this long testimony in front of the judge. And I read part of the transcript and it was part of what he said was really poignant. Let me read it to you. He said, laying in my bed, I can reach my left hand over and touch my neighbor. Five feet from my head is a water fountain. It's the only water fountain trafficked by every inmate in the dorm. So that shows a really stark picture. We did talk to another inmate. I talked to her lawyers. Her name is Chalana McFarland. She's serving a 30-year federal sentence for massive fraud. She's in Florida and she described her conditions. Take a listen. Um, there are roughly 95 women on each range, um, but it's a very tight fit. It's about the size of an average walk-in closet. Because of the number of elderly inmates or older inmates or inmates with medical issues, they've now cut the bunk beds in half and made twin beds, um, which takes up all of the floor. So only one person can move around at a time now. That's pretty chilling, right? Yeah, it is. And it does not sound like social distancing. I mean, having only one person be able to walk around at once does not sound like a six foot gap in between these prisoners at all. Well, you're right. And she is really worried. She's interesting, actually, because she was ordered released to home confinement, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. It's taking all this time for the paperwork to come through. So she's waiting all the while she's at high risk and she's worried that she's going to get it because not all of the prisoners here are asking for release. Some are looking for better access to health care rights. Some are just concerned for their safety. And you started the podcast with those prisoners in Miami and they were talking about one inmate who had fallen sick. Listen to them again, because here they describe the help that one of the older prisoners who was dying from COVID received. And there was the old man. You can hear it, like wheezy sound, like if he had a lot of a fluid inside him, he couldn't breathe right. And we went to the um, corporal that was on duty. The corporal said, that's not my problem. He kind of brushed it off his suit, like, yo, whatever. And just walked out and never came back. He didn't even come into the cell. He didn't even come into the cell. Although Chalana, back in Florida, right, she says that in her facility, health care has improved. They've gotten better. Um, we do have access um, four days a week to, um, to go to sick hall. Unfortunately, depending on how many people go on a certain day, you might not get seen that day. And, and it may be a week or longer before you're actually seen. Wow. I mean, thinking about waiting a week at a time when this virus spreads so quickly and there are still so many unknowns. I mean, we've heard these stories about how people feel ill and then the next day they might have to go on to a ventilator. The idea that you wouldn't even get to see a doctor or, or be able to talk to anyone for a week is 
really chilling. I want to be clear, you kind of touched on this, but some of these prisoners are seeking early release, but some are just looking for improved conditions. They just want a safer situation, right? Yeah. I mean, as I said in the beginning, I don't want to confuse apples and oranges. We're taking a big picture here. And some people like Chalana, she's been granted early release. She's waiting for it. Other people, they're in for much more serious crimes. And all they're asking for is improved conditions. On the federal level, according to the Bureau of Prisons, there's been nearly 150,000 inmates and 36,000 staff who have tested positive. And on the federal level, there's been 64 deaths and zero staff members. But again, go back to the testing and the fact that it's hard to trust some numbers because a lot of people aren't being tested. Right, and I can't imagine how hard it is. I know that we said that they swear that they're ramping up testing, they're trying to make it easier, but we're still living in a place where there are places within the U.S. that aren't prisons that you can't get a coronavirus test. So if that's the case, you know, looking at these prisons, it's quite scary. And I want to ask you about something. I know that Bill Barr weighed in on this at some point. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, you know, we've been talking about a lot on the prisoner's perspective, but it is worth talking about the other side, right? Because for instance, in the States, you heard that testimony from Marlowe and Louisiana came back to the Supreme Court and said, look, we're doing the best we can. This is a pandemic like nothing that we've seen. They said in briefs that they're being aggressive, dynamic, and ongoing. And Bill Barr, as you said, he has tried to attack the problem. He says that the federal government wants to release inmates when it's possible from prison to home confinement when they don't obviously pose a risk to society. We've been trying to keep our inmates as safe as we can. We've let a lot of inmates who are older and don't pose a threat to the community. We've put them on home confinement to get them out of the institutions. So we're taking every measure we can to protect those inmates. Here's what's interesting is there is some who say there's a disconnect between what Barr is saying and what's actually happening in the prisons because they're saying that the Bureau of Prisons in some instances aren't following those recommendations. We talked to David Foddy of the ACLU and he said... The federal prison system has been woefully behind the curve, despite two memos from Attorney General Barr instructing the Bureau of Prisons to maximize the use of home confinement. We've seen very few federal prisoners transferred out. It's nowhere near the population reduction that the public health experts are telling us is essential uh, if we're going to slow the spread of the virus and protect those who are most medically vulnerable. But, you know, just to reiterate, uh, Noel Francisco, he is the Solicitor General of the United States, and he is behind one of these petitions at the Supreme Court. And this is in a case out of Ohio where this district court judge said he basically blasted the Bureau of Prisons, essentially for not moving quickly enough, for not following Barr's directive. But Francisco said, you know, this is a complicated scenario here. For instance, transferring people is dangerous, not only for the prisoners, but for the people who are doing the transferring. And then when you talk about social distancing, this federal judge said, look, these people are in dormitory style facilities. This can't work. We've got to move them to places where there's single cells. But here's a complication with that. Those people in that particular case, they were all low-risk inmates, and that's why they had dormitory-style facilities. If you go ahead and move them to places where there are single cells, you're moving them to a higher-risk 
prison and maybe even the inmates wouldn't like that. So it's really complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And I assume that overall, they're trying to find a solution that could work for everyone. But this is not a scenario in which the same thing will work for everyone. You know, obviously, some people just can be released with their lower risk. You can have some people who can be separated, but there's all different scenarios and different crimes that people have committed, which changes the entire dynamic because you have to look at each case in individually, particularly in a system that's already strapped for resources. And what you're saying is so true, right? Because you you have to do that analysis. And guess what? That analysis takes time. And right now you've got this unbelievably contagious disease going on or virus going on. And then there's the other thing is the thought about a backlash. Like for instance, what if you go ahead, you do release someone to home confinement and then there's another crime. And that's a point that the governor of Texas really pushed on back in March. We've already worked with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice on solutions and we will work with all local authorities on solutions. But releasing dangerous criminals from jails into the streets is not the right solution. And doing so is now prohibited by law. Interesting. So this is exactly what we're talking about, right? Releasing dangerous criminals from jails onto the streets is not the right solution. And it gives us this idea uh, that there really are two sides of this or, or really multiple sides of this on this. So many sides. And with that, we'll be back with more from Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue. And we're back with Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue. Now, let's focus on those prisoners who are asking for release. How are they pleading their case? Well, again, Chalana McFarlane, she is in a federal penitentiary. She did get that release, right? She got the release that Barr wanted, and it's not happening. They're dragging their feet, she thinks, as far as getting her release. But she had a lot to say about what people should know about what is happening while her request is pending. I think they should know that in the case of particularly women and men that are at the camps and the low facilities, that we are not a security risk to the community and we weren't sentenced to death. So we should not have death sentences due to COVID-19. We should not have death sentences. That's that's incredibly powerful to hear her say that. And it's true. She was not sentenced to death. And now there is a fear of that possibility. I do want to touch on the process here because it's just uncertain to me or unclear to me that the process was designed to handle complaints like this pandemic. So how are these prisoners suing for the release or for better conditions? Right. Well, there's lots of legal issues at play, just as you said. But here's one. Under federal law, it's called the Prison Litigation Reform Act. Under that law, an inmate, before filing a lawsuit, has to go through a grievance process, right? So you can't file a lawsuit. And the law was signed, obviously, because they wanted to get rid of frivolous lawsuits. They wanted to try to handle these issues. And obviously, that law wasn't passed when COVID was anywhere in sight. But that's one of the problems, because we've seen some of the prisoners' early appeals fail because judges have said, look, under federal law, you've got to go through the grievance process, go through the grievance process, and then come back and file a lawsuit. 
And that's the problem. That takes time. I hate to keep repeating it, but that's the problem here is, you know, we've talked about these numbers and going through that process always takes time. But in this situation, it's disaster. Yeah, and it's time that they don't really have particularly with what we know about this pandemic. So what has happened at the Supreme Court so far? So at the court, we've seen so far three petitions, two of them from inmates and then one from the Solicitor General, like I told you earlier, Noel Francisco. And he's come to the court because a district court judge was very critical of what the Bureau of Prisons was doing. And that judge ordered the release to home confinement or at least the transfer of 836 low-risk inmates. That's a huge number, right? Nine prisoners in that prison had died, and the judge said the progress creeps. So Francisco raced to the Supreme Court, and one of the things he said to the justices is, be very careful here, because we're talking about precedent, right? However you rule, you're going to set precedent. And if you rule in favor of the prisoners here, he said in court briefs, it would mean that every prisoner in a dormitory style detention facility in which there are confirmed cases of COVID has a constitutional right to be removed from that facility. So that's part of the argument he made. The Supreme Court acted on that petition, but basically punted the case back because they said that the government had made a procedural error. So that one is still pending. But there is another case that's still out with a Louisiana prisoner. And the court acted on a Texas case. And this was really interesting because I told you about the hurdles that you have to get over before you can file a lawsuit. And this Texas case was brought by geriatric prisoners. They wanted better relief. And the Supreme Court basically denied their petition for now. So their case is going to continue in the lower court. But Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she agreed with the court's decision. She said, look, you didn't follow the path you were supposed to. But she wrote on her own and she was joined by the other liberal justice on the court, the two of them. And they made perfectly clear that they are watching this as it plays out. She was really poignant in her opinion. She said this, she said, it has long been said that a society's worth can be judged by taking stock of its prisons. That is all the truer in this pandemic where inmates everywhere have been rendered vulnerable and often powerless to protect themselves from harm. And then she ended with this flourish. May we hope that our country's facilities serve as models rather than cautionary tales. So that's what we've heard from Sotomayor And now we're waiting to see how the justices will deal with these other cases that come up. Wow, there's a lot there and a lot to continue to monitor. Ariane, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing this story to light. I actually had not heard so much about it until we started emailing about it. And I think it's very important that we get that out there to our listeners. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much. And today is my last day hosting, and I have had a blast talking to you, and I am very appreciative of all the listeners who I know downloaded every day this week. And of course, David Chalian will be back from leave next week. The Daily DC is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is the executive producer, and Haley Thomas is the senior news producer. Raj Makija is our technical lead. Our episodes are produced by the amazing Will Cadigan and Mimi Mutesa, and engineered by Francisco Monroy. David Toledo is the team's production assistant. So stay safe, stay healthy, and David will be back next week.